Welcome to the Twilight Show, Friday, 6th of October, with me, Maxine Howells. Really sorry for the slightly late start tonight. I was having one or two technical issues, but I'm looking forward to be talking all things bias against the working classes tonight. So really exciting show. Thank you for joining me. Hello. And yes, just again, another apology for being a little bit late to start tonight. So I hope that you can hear me all right. I hope my microphone's working OK now. There was something, goodness knows what was going on about it. But anyway, I'm here now. Thank you very much, Claire. Just letting me know that you can hear me. Thank you. So tonight's show is um, picking up on an article that was in The Guardian on the 3rd of October. Um, and has been spoken about a lot on Twitter since. The, the article in The Guardian is all about bias against working class pupils in English schools. Um, and again, the title of the article, Warning Over Unconscious Bias Against Working Class Pupils in English, School, in English Schools. Now, I noticed this article, um, it had been shared and commented on by a number of people and I, I found it quite fascinating. Um, it's a real shame that there's not anybody who's commented on it who's available necessarily to join as a guest tonight. I can only hope that during the course of the show somebody um, might call in and join us and be able to have have some discussion on it but I'm really fascinated for anyone to to join so again as, as I said I noted noticed the article that had been shared and commented on by by many people who I like I follow and I respect on Twitter um Penny Rabage being the first somebody who I follow and, and comments and write some really really fascinating stuff Tom HB of Teachers Talk Radio when I I first spoke about um, doing this topic he shared with me some other shares that he's seen and and I'm going to use some of their comments here in the show tonight so again really thank you to everybody who's who it whose um, comments and whose thoughts I'm going to share and I'm, I'm going to talk about tonight. The, the main article uh, references the work of social mobility expert Lee Elliott Major, um, specifically in his new book, Equity in Education, Leveling the Playing Field of Learning, a Practical Guide for Teachers, um, co-authored by Emily Bryant, a teacher and doctoral student. Now, Lee Elliott, Dr. Lee Elliott Major is a professor, so Professor Lee Elliott Major, my apologies, um, is a professor of social mobility at the University of Exeter, which, um, according to their website, I'm reading a little bit about, was one of the first posts of its type to be focusing just really there very much on social mobility in their sociology department. Now, there are so many well-qualified broadly publish experts um, when I look at Twitter and beyond and start to, to read up a few things before show, before tonight's show. So many well-respected, well-qualified names who are real experts in this area. So here comes my disclaimer. I'm, I'm not. I'm not an expert. Um, I'm a former teacher, former head teacher, um, and still work within education and worked in a, in a variety of settings, um, some very, um, very, very affluent middle class settings, some um, settings where there are a lot of children from, from poorer backgrounds and, and a lot of children who, when I read a lot of this stuff, um, really, really speaks up to me. And again, in some of those areas where it is broadly middle class, very affluent settings, I think then there are even more challenges for children from working class backgrounds and for children who don't have such affluent home lives. Um, and again, I think it's really important that we, we think and we, re we reflect on that and, and actually try as educators to, to do what we can do about it. Now, 
again, my disclaimer, I'm, I'm not an expert. Um, I'll talk a little bit about what I've read. Um, I will reference the, the Guardian article and thank you to, to Tom for clarifying that I, I can do that. Um, and I, I'm going to talk a little bit about some more things that I've read around it. But most importantly, I do really invite you to share your opinions. So I know there's one or two people listening and I know that there's one or two people who are, are out there, hopefully online. We might have missed them if they thought we weren't coming on at six o'clock. I apologise for that. Maybe there's some people listening afterwards in the, in, um, in the podcast when it's published. So here we go. We'll, we'll, we'll carry on anyway. So I'm going to talk a little bit more about some of the things in in the article. The article was um, written by Sally Will, published on the 3rd of October 2023 in The Guardian. And again, really, really interesting article. And it's, it's great to have this material to talk about and to be able to, to comment on a little bit. I'm going to link back to um, the show that I did two weeks ago as well, where I spoke to, to Sufi and Safiq of um, Chilton um, Teaching School, who's the director of teaching school there. And, and we discussed there, we discussed with him equity with a, a racial angle on that. And, and I think really, actually, when I think about tonight's show and, and the content here and the, these same issues, Obviously, there are some real crossovers there. And, and again, I, I will reference back to some of the brilliant stuff that, that Sufian spoke about two weeks ago. Obviously, amazing guest to have had on. I'm really, really, really pleased to have had him. So, um, Professor Lee Elliott, he, he tells us, um, Lee Elliott Major, tells us that, that the mindset in many schools requires children to be, in inverted commas, middle-class clones in order to succeed. Now, this is really interesting, really interesting. What I'm going to do is unpick um, as we go through some of the main points. So I'll just go through what the what the overall headlines are. So that, that mindset in many schools is really requiring children to be middle-class clones in order to be successful. So outlying the fact that that actually truly being working class that actually that's not okay in schools that's that's not where the mindset is and I, again that is really interesting and really concerning um he says really clearly that schools in england in particular must do more to challenge the unconscious bias in the classroom and I, and I will talk a little bit more about that point on unconscious bias and some of the comments that have been made on it as we go through um against children from working class backgrounds. He blames a mindset in education that treats working class children as inferior and requires them to become middle class clones in order to succeed at school. So again, that's about creating that, that picture of what success looks like and success looks like being middle class. And again, I've got some drawing on some of the other comments on, on social media and, and some of the other points around that, which I think are really, really interesting. There's a really interesting point, actually, about working class achievement. And at the moment, it, it's Black History Month and there are many debates about whether that is, is right or whether, whether every month should be Black History Month and, and how, we should, how we should proceed forward with, with actually really thinking about making sure that there is true equity in our curriculum. But um, Professor um, Lee Elliott Major points out that, that the curriculum actually often really lacks working class figures. And he quotes and he, he points out names figures such as Stormzy, Tracy Emin and the 19th century paleontologist Mary Anning, as well as the scientist Michael Faraday, and really emphasising their working class roots and the fact that they, they continue to really be working class through that success. And again, that's something that doesn't necessarily happen in our curriculum. And I think 
in the, the English curriculum, that resonates with me. Again, with the figures that we put forward, that's something that I'll come back to as well in, in a little while. He raises another really interesting point. Again, I'll, I'll unpick this a little bit more shortly, um, suggesting that we should change our terminology. So for a long time now, we have spoken in education about disadvantaged children. And, and he raises the idea that we should refer to children from low-income families as under-resourced rather than being disadvantaged. Again, that's interesting. We'll come back to that as well shortly. Um, and overall, around this book, um, hi, hi, buddy. Nice to see you. Thank you for joining us. I, you've missed my disclaimer about not being an expert on this topic, um, but welcome. And also my apology about being late to start. So um, Professor Elliot Major talks about this book coming from real frustration and having worked in the field of uh, social mobility for many, many years, actually seeing post-pandemic considerably widened gaps between pupils from what he describes as under-resourced backgrounds and their more privileged counterparts widening. And I think that's something that will all resonate on in schools post-pandemic. Um, you know, the data shows it when we look at, at GCSE results and when we look at SATS results, the gap between um, either whether you're going to say under-resourced or disadvantaged pupils and, and all pupils has grown significantly. And again, I think that is really why the whole article and the book and this commentary is really, really well-timed. And again, as he says, for all the efforts we've made, we still see these incredibly stark divides in education between the education haves and education has, have nots. So a real lack of equity here that's evident in so much data um, and, and so many, many challenges. So I'm going to unpick um, and obviously, I really, really call for you to to join in, to comment, to tell me what what you think on each of these points, around each of the points that um, that have been made in in Sally Wheel's article and and the book that I've got on order that's out today that I'm really looking forward to to arriving. So first, I'm going to start with um, the idea of um, that. Um, Professor has about changing our terminology from disadvantaged to under-resourced. And again, the argument with this is um, Dr. Professor Elliot Major says that the problem with terming a child as disadvantaged is that it's a binary classification leading to a real crude demarcation between who is, who are the advantaged and who are the disadvantaged. No grey area. You are one or you are the other. And he also argues that it immediately traps us um, into deficit thinking, implying that uh, I'm just putting in our minds the use of that phrase that this is a problem that we need to solve. Um, and that, that actually think about what is it about that disadvantage? What is it about the change? What is it about about that whole idea about those children that we do need to help and support. But actually, it focuses our minds on individuals. Um, and again, individuals when facing hardship or poverty, it's actually about the circumstances those individuals find themselves in. So I find that a really interesting, um, a really interesting point to question that and to comment on moving from under resourced um, rather than saying disadvantaged. And, and I'd never questioned that terminology in, in years of, of working and, and looking at our strategies for children who are eligible for pupil premium grants. And those also that aren't, but who may um, be presenting as what I described as disadvantaged or, or fit into that category. Um, and it, it got me into thinking um, in other areas. So, for example, with special educational needs and disabilities or SEND, we don't say a SEND child anymore. We would say a child with SEND. And that's a really crucial difference 
to me. When you know, scent doesn't define a child. It is a, it, it is something that that child has a, a special educational need. It isn't them. It isn't what they are. It isn't what's through their their life you know actually you know totally what they're about so instead of saying a scent child we talk about a child with scent and that's really interesting to me because that whole idea about describing a child as disadvantaged or even describing a child as under-resourced hello Paul welcome I'm just on the little bit where we're talking about um, children from low-income families potentially being referred to as under-resourced rather than disadvantaged in the um, in the article that um, we've referred to that's that that great article from um, the Guardian from Sally Wheel thank you thank you Paul nice to see you so again I think that's a really interesting reflection and it, it just made me think that so maybe even without saying that that is a disadvantaged child or they are disadvantaged children as a whole group they are children who face some disadvantages in education or even saying that, that they are children who are under-resourced. They're not under-resourced children. There's not something fundamentally different and wrong with them as children. It is their circumstances and they are children facing those circumstances. Again, just my opinion. Fascinated to hear that. And again, that's that's really, really interesting, I think. Um, Claire, thank you. you. You've said under-resourced. Yeah, I get it to a point, but who gets to, to count what is normally resourced? And that's a really interesting point, isn't it? How, how much money do you have to have coming into your house? How many other resources? What is it about that? And again, I I find that whole idea really, really interesting because I've, uh, in my, you know, in my teaching career, I've I've met a lot of children um, for whom, if we're we're thinking about this from an what would advantage you as in in education, there are access to reading materials helps children to read, access to um, language and to you know clear discussions in the house so they're all things that advantage learners um yet some children who have quite high levels of income and certainly wouldn't be under-resourced would also not necessarily have those educational advantages at home so there are so many things to underpick unpick and yet claire i absolutely agree that with you where, where do you decide what is normally resourced um, what is adequately resourced? I, I don't know. I really don't know. And Lisa McKenzie, um, who is Dr. Lisa McKenzie, senior lecturer in sociology at the University of Bedfordshire. Again, another one of these, like I said at the beginning, my disclaimer, I am not an expert. I am not a sociologist, unfortunately. I actually really wish I was. Um, i I am a, a former teacher, former head teacher who's, you know, been around the education block a fair bit. But I, I'm not in this league of the Professor Lee Elliott Majors, the Dr. Lisa McKenzie and, and some of the other really, really knowledgeable people who have um, been able to comment on Twitter and also have written amazing articles about disadvantage. So on to Dr. Lisa, Dr. Lisa McKenzie. Um, senior lecturer in sociology at the University of Bedfordshire, so very, very local to me, describes herself on Twitter as working class academic, Anarch and anarchistic author, anarchistic author, think I look like Elsie Tanner, but probably more like Sue Pollard. Um, and I think that that's a brilliant description. Um, and again, on the subject of let's not what she says around this let's not stop saying around this um, terminology change potentially she says another thing I'm getting annoyed let's not stop saying disadvantaged because it's binary meaning there's the advantaged that's a true assessment let's not say under-resourced let's let's say what it is one group is disadvantaged by another let's call it out 
And that's a really, really interesting thing. Again, Dr. Lisa McKenzie, she she gained her master's, a bachelor's, master's and PhD at the University of Nottingham and has been a London School of Economics research fellow, now senior lecturer in sociology at the University of Bedfordshire. She really knows her stuff. So there's great reflection here, reflection a child who is disadvantaged, this idea of a child who is under-resourced or from a background that's under-resourced and thank you I've got, got a couple of comments coming in now which is just absolutely amazing so so Paul thank you um, your 16 years of teaching have all been in deprived areas with high levels of benefits social care child protection issues and domestic violence I hear where you're coming from well again my my teaching career Paul has um, not necessarily been in um, areas like that. I've I spent my my time of headship. One was in a very, very mixed catchment where um half of the half of the children probably would come from areas that you would describe there as being high in benefit, social care, child protection, and the other half was was really quite affluent. My my second headship then was from was in a more affluent area. My other periods of teaching, including deputy headship and and particularly in some of the areas that I've been really privileged to work in more recently since being a head, working with a, a trust as an associate leader, have been in, in areas that you would describe as, as more deprived with, with high levels of benefit and social care. So, yeah, I again, it, it is a privilege and, and seeing this, I can see exactly that that whole idea here of what what's being said by by these these um more um educationally aware people than i am and paul thank you for that and you've um thanks for calling that out again um so again thinking about dr mckenzie and some of the things that that she has said what is it a child who's disadvantaged what is it a child who is who is under-resourced? Um, you know, it certainly would seem that children who are born into a um a situation where they're un where they are under-resourced, although like Claire says really, really intelligently, where do you draw the line? What is under-resourced are at a disadvantage um and don't perform as well academically. Although I've said we we have got some other children who are born to more affluent um, families who are also um, disadvantaged. So again, this whole idea about what it is to be under-resourced was, I found really, really interesting. Um, and again, one of the things that um, Dr. McKenzie does in her work, and this, this I find quite, I do find this really, really interesting. She describes herself as a working class academic which is, again, I think really interesting. And she says it's difficult to be accepted as that. And it's it's almost as if, um, and again, I'm really mindful that I'm talking as somebody from um, a middle class background. Both my parents were, were born as were in working class backgrounds. Um, but uh, by the time they'd had me, we would be in what you'd describe probably as as reasonably affluent um and again i think i had quite a lot of disadvantage a lot of advantage now looking back at, at how things were um but this high idea that transition to middle class should happen when you become an academic and thinking about people who are academics who are teachers as being middle class that's that's what our stereotype that's what our image is and and her saying that it's difficult to be seen as a working class academic is really interesting and it it made me think back i did say earlier that i was going to reference this it made me think back to the equity discussion 2 weeks ago with with sufian and that whole idea of role models and seeing people who look like you and sound like you. Now, I described two weeks ago that um, the woman who inspired me, the first female head teacher I saw was Mrs. Bagshaw when I was 15. If I hadn't seen um, Mrs. Bagshaw as, as, a, as a female, as somebody who was, you know, there, who was doing the job that I then went on to do, do would I have ever thought I could do that? Who knows? Um, and Sufian was 
really, you know, he spoke so passionately about his own daughter, who is absolutely fabulous and gorgeous, and saying, um, let's not focus about trying to put her on the moon, where she's not even sure if she can make it down the corridor into the head teacher's office and take on that job. Because in a population where we are 18% um, of us are from black and ethnic minority um, heritage, um, or, or over that figure, to only 6% of school leaders are from black and ethnic minority um, backgrounds. I think that's really interesting. So I wonder, thinking about being working class and thinking about what Dr. McKenzie had said, and she's written some fascinating articles, actually, some really fascinating articles. I wonder what it would mean um, and I wonder how many absolutely, really clearly working class school senior leaders we have. And that, I wonder, again, it would be really hard to measure, wouldn't it? And again, like Claire said about measuring, where do you decide where, where um, adequately resourced comes in? Where do you, you create that? And how do you, where, how would we, how would we look at that? That's, again, quite interesting. But I wonder how many there are. Um, I'm just going to just have a have a little look. I think this is a really, really fascinating article that I just want to to share a little bit of it with you um, about one of Dr. Um, McKenzie's articles, and it's called "There's um, Nothing Good for the There's." Um, sorry, I'm going. Oh, sorry, I really don't want to misquote this because it's such a good article. Um, there's nothing too good for the working class. So this is all about that whole idea of, of what is good coming through a really middle class lens. And again, I'm just going to quote, I'm going to read a little bit of it because I really think it's an excellent article, an, ex an excellent document. So there's nothing too good for the working class. The middle class are defined and valued by what they own. Their success in business, they rise through the tiers of education system, their good taste the class war has too often been measured through the narrow distribution of wealth, education and through the economy, meaning that when working class people enter into higher education or business, entrepreneurial and innovative, setting up local businesses, serving their community or entering into the creative industries of art, drama or literature, they must immediately deny their working class identities, lives and families. To be working class has too long been used as a shorthand to mean failure. They are the ones that were not good enough to rise to become middle class. It appears almost impossible to describe yourself as a working class academic or a working class artist in the UK today. The common misconception is that we, brackets the working class, close brackets, cannot appreciate the arts, literature or engage in critical thinking. Instead, to be working class is to be poor and shabby, unhealthy and always connected to dirt. George Orwell in The Road to Wigan Pier told us that the middle class despises, despises and think of us in four frightful words, the lower class smell. And I trust his first hand account from the playing fields of Eton. So again, this is fascinating, this idea of what is aspiration and looking at aspiration through a very, very middle class lens. Um, uh, and again, I think that just causes us to check ourselves. Um, again, right. Thank you, Paul. I've got, I've got a comment from you. I'm just going to read that out. From a primary view, we've recently completed aspirations work. Many were, many were YouTubers, policemen, vet, etc. One girl said, mum, ah, oh, brilliant. She's, uh, mum is a, is a role model, fantastic. I asked her what else she would do uh, um, and be as well as a mum. She said, mums don't have to work because they get money. Okay, again, that's really, really interesting, isn't it? And that throws, that Paul, that throws many, many arguments and many views, doesn't it, to us there? Um, my mum didn't work and, and I definitely was better off for her not, not working. Um, 
but I, I grew up in one of those homes where there were, there were two um, people and one person did bring money into the household. But again, that whole idea then about aspirations is, is really, really interesting. I wonder how your teachers followed that discussion and where that, where that goes. That's an interesting. Yeah. And again, that's again, you're, you're pointing out there about a mum and, and receiving benefits with, with a large family. And when we're thinking about society and we're thinking about sustainability as a society, obviously that is something that is is really, really difficult. And um, again, for children aspiring to being working class or um, making some money is something that it can be really difficult to change, can't it? And it can be very difficult. I'm really sense checking that and going, am I looking at this through really middle class eyes or am I looking at that through actually it is better for us to have aspirations to grow up to work to make our own money really interesting I wonder what anyone else thinks about that that's how I was brought up to go to work to earn your money and they were they were my values that that were brought into me it wasn't necessarily always about having lots and lots of fancy stuff but it was about that, that going and working. Thank you for sharing that, Paul. That's a really, really fascinating point. I really like that. So this idea about aspiration of working class people and that for your children in, in a primary school, seeing working class people being where they are, I wonder how many children can't imagine themselves as artists and seeing Tracy Emin would help or seeing, seeing the um you know the, the success of of Stormzy or seeing um people like police officers who may be working class who could really present that how could we make those working role working class role models work I'm going to quote I, I i spoke about the, the trust that i do some work um, with before and, and I, I spoke about sufian and there are two people in the, the trust that i i work with the ceo and the deputy ceo who who i think in my opinion um whilst you know are are wealthy and are on you know pretty hefty good good salaries do talk really really openly about being working class and maintaining that that sort of working class view and, and vision. And the CEO, CEO himself talks openly about his upbringing as a miner's son in the Midlands and the deputy CEO of, of growing up in Luton, being local, keeping her um, Luton accent, you know, proud Lutonian accent that she speaks of at, when she ever speaks about visiting her nan on Marsh Farm. And, and I think that's really, really interesting that they are role models and I, I wonder how many of the children notice that um that that they are some working class people who have gone through education and, and are the first in their families as you know actually I am actually the first who, who went to university in my family um who could have that aspiration and and how we work on that um and again that whole idea about seeing people who look like you and and sound like you which again did did come out of the um racial equity network in the last year um it was a comment that actually resonated with my my husband um again i'm sure he won't mind me well i have checked with him that it's okay to talk about him tonight so he um comes from a, a working back a working class background and when he heard um the talking of and again this was this was referenced in a um an ethnic in an ethnic minority way that we're talking about people from black and ethnic minority backgrounds not necessarily aspiring to being in senior positions because people don't look like them and sound like them um he actually thought of his own fairly um heavy luton accent and um, the way that that he presents or he perceives that he presents. And he'd realised, actually, retrospectively, he'd probably always assumed that people in the most senior positions should look and sound a certain way. You know, clear, middle-class accent, you know, all of those um, England BBC vowels spoken properly. And 
had made an assumption that those top jobs weren't going to be for him. And he, he realised that whilst he's doing pretty well now, um, and, and I think his awareness of that, but also noting that it's taken longer for him and been a much harder climb than for many of his peers, um, was was really, really important for him to, to recognise. Um, and, and I think he has more self-doubt and more, more feelings of, of imposter syndrome, um, if that is a thing or whether it isn't a thing, than others do, about that whole um, role model. So again, fascinating, Paul, to think about your, your primary school and how you can really work on those, those role models. So again, I'd be, be fascinated to hear a little bit more about that. I'm going to pause for breath now and I'm going to go to the news and then carry on after that um, about with a little bit more of Professor Elliot Major's discussions about um, the fact that social class is missing very much from the debate about diversity in education. So here we go to the news. Teaching is a rewarding profession, but it comes with its fair share of challenges. That's where ADAPT come in. We're not your typical trade union, but instead a modern, apolitical alternative, offering expert legal, employment and mental health support. Protection without the politics. So what makes ADAPT different? We're always apolitical and independent, specialised solely in supporting individual teachers. Our caseworkers are professionally qualified, ensuring you always get the best advice. Plus, there's 24-7 mental health support. Whether it's a simple contract check or handling serious allegations, EDAPT are here for you. Join the thousands of educators who've chosen EDAPT to protect their careers. Subscribe at edapt.org.uk today. EDAPT. Supporting school staff. Protecting careers. This is Teachers Talk Radio, and this is Teachers Talk Radio News. The BBC covers reports that Labour has dropped plans to end charitable status for private schools. The status exempts some private schools in England and Wales from taxes. The Labour leader, Sakia Starmer, had previously said charitable status for private schools could not be justified. The party said it will still remove other tax breaks if it wins the next general election. There are around 2,500 private schools in England and Wales, and government figures show around half are registered as charities. Having charitable status means the schools cannot operate for profit and are eligible to claim some tax exemptions, including on donations and business rates. Since 2006, private schools have had to demonstrate they are creating public benefit in order to maintain their charitable status. Labour said it would charge private schools 20% VAT and end business rates relief. It says this could raise an estimated £1.7 billion. A party spokesperson said the money would fund desperately needed teachers and mental health counselling in every secondary school. Last year, the Scottish Government scrapped business rate relief for private schools. The Conservatives have questioned whether tax changes would raise the £1.7 billion as claimed by Labour. The problem of RAC was highlighted again as parents with children at a secondary school in Durham, affected by the potentially unsafe concrete, staged a protest. Parents told schools minister Baroness Barron, who was visiting the school, that there had to be more support for the teachers and pupils and that the school must be rebuilt. The school is using a mix of face-to-face -face and online teaching after RAC was found shortly before the return to school from the summer break. The multi-academy trust in charge of the school has asked the DfE if it could use centre-assessed grades for GCSE and A-level pupils similar to the way assessment was used during the pandemic. A DfE spokesman said it was working to bring back face-to-face -face teaching quickly and that the school would be rebuilt. Procurement, design and planning stages would be started before the end of the year. Schools Week reports on MPs' comments that government should create a school absence code specifically for mental health and review the adequacy of health services struggling with soaring waiting lists. 
The Parliamentary Education Committee has also urged the government to make its daily attendance data collection mandatory as soon as possible. The committee found growing demand for mental health services and special educational needs support, as well as the cost of living pressures and other issues, have compounded problems with attendance. However, Schools Minister Nick Gibbs said changes would add further complications for schools in coding absence, which could damage the accuracy of data. Full details of the committee's recommendations can be found in the article in Schools Week Online. The Guardian covers news that in America, students at more than 50 high schools across the country are proposing a Green New Deal for schools. They are demanding that their districts teach climate justice, create pathways to green jobs and plan for climate disasters. The campaign is seen as a reaction to right-wing efforts to ban or suppress climate education and activism at school. The national effort would see teach-ins, walkouts and petitions. The New Deal also calls for updated buildings and infrastructure to make schools more climate resilient. Further details can be found on the Guardian website. Finally, the Nuffield Trust has said that student loans in England should be written off for certain health staff once they have completed 10 years of NHS service. It says this is needed to stop a dropout crisis among nurses, midwives and other frontline staff. Ministers have rejected the idea, saying support is already in place and that the current student finance system strikes the right balance between the interests of students and taxpayers as well as highlighting training grants, support for childcare and some expenses. Tuition fees are not charged in Scotland and in Wales, tuition fees are covered if nurses and other frontline staff work for the NHS for two years. This has been your Teachers Talk Radio News with Joe Fox. Okay, welcome back. Um, thanks to Joe for the news as always. Um, again, really, really good to hear from her. I'm just going to go to one quote from tw um, from Twitter for a minute. Um, Tom and I was I was in touch with Tom, hoping that he could come on and talk with us this evening. But unfortunately, he's still at work. Tom, I hope you're listening in the background, as you said you were. Um, again, your comment that the suggestions to deal with unconscious bias against the working class on schools here, referring to the article, are pretty much the most middle class thing you've ever heard. Yeah, quite quite possible. I wish you were here to be able to, to discuss with us, but thank you for that comment. It, um, it did make me reflect, actually. It did make me, it did make me um, smile. Again, um, great. Okay, Paul, thank you. You have talk you've called in you've Paul you're in a, a primary school and you teach a class of 32 children you, you've said before about um, having worked for 16 years in um, areas of, of high social deprivation your class of 32 children currently includes eight Polish children two um, Arabic speakers one Ghanaian and one Nigerian one child from Nigeria it also has children uh, two children with a one-to-one -one and um one with multiple SEND needs or, or many children with, with SEND needs. Um, again, is it another option to break down the racial barriers and highlight people um, from everywhere can make it? Yeah, absolutely. I think it's it's really, really important. And again, when um, um, one of the one of the quotes that we were looking at when we were talking about racial equity is is racial equity isn't a middle class issue. It isn't a working class issue. It's an everybody's issue. And I, again, think that this whole idea about aspirations and really looking at all the ideas and thinking that, that everybody, every child can um make it is something that's really important for us as as educators, isn't it? And again, really making me reflect on thinking well what what does making that what does making it mean what what does making it mean particularly when i um, read some of the work about dr mckenzie about how our, our own ideas um i would think that success with um school would be one idea of making it doing well and having a a job and a life that that brings you joy and that um, allows you uh, a lifestyle that you want. That doesn't necessarily have to be 
fancy cars, flashy things, you know, middle class um, home. What is it? But it's it's what you want and it's it's something that is going to make you feel happy and make you feel really, really, um, you know, sort of, well, proud of, of what you do and, and where, where you are. I think that's that's really, really important. Anyway, I'm going to go back to more intelligent um, comment now and not not my own ramblings and, and back a little bit more to um, the Guardian article referencing Professor Elliot Major. So he argues that, um, again, a bit like you've said there, Paul, that um, social class is missing from the education about diversity and education. So when we look at um, SATs questions. This is really, really clear. Um, and again, um, Professor Elliot Major references GCSE papers in maths and modern foreign languages have tested candidates' ability to deal with questions about trips to the theatre and skiing holidays. Now, if that isn't in a um, child or young person's frame of reference, they're thrown before they've even started and are at a, whether we are going to use this word or not, disadvantage to children that have got that in their frame of, of reference. So pupils who, as he said, pupils who've experienced the stage or the slopes are much more likely to be able to infer the answer than those who haven't, whatever their proficiency in maths or languages might be. And I think that's really interesting. And we've seen this also in Key Stage 2 SAT. So just looking at 11-year-olds, I know uh, myself back in my, my middle school days, sometimes looking at, at some of those questions and thinking that's definitely going to be harder for a child that hasn't experienced what that that story is about for example in the reading paper and this this hit the press this year um with again statistics the proportion of disadvantaged children um achieving the expected standard in reading fell from 62 percent in 2022 to 60 percent in 23. now the figure dropped from 80 percent to 78 for children not to be known to be disadvantaged. So that, that would be around children eligible for pupil premium. Um, but it does really draw into mind what was that reading paper like? Um, and in 2023, it was it was widely reported that, um, and although absolutely denied by um, the, the DfE that, that that was the case, but many, many educators commented that the 2023 reading paper would reduce some children to tears and the text was about a giant bat colony which was adapted from a new york times article a camping trip featuring sheep rustlers and a boy on a remote scottish island who hears a hears a wolf um and again straight away children who have experienced who have got an idea who have for example visited a remote Scottish island or, or visited anywhere that is different to their their locale or have an idea of what those things might be like or have, have heard or have discussed or have ac had access to, to wider literature about it would be much any who hadn't would be really disadvantaged in that test so I know it's a school's job to broaden children's background knowledge um, and again really thinking about what is that equity in education what is it about um, and again one head teacher um, Sarah Hewitt Clarkson the head teacher of Anderton Park Primary School in Birmingham described the um, reading paper as utterly miserable, scary and quite middle class. Again, just flagging up that that is really coming through a middle class lens. Now, Claire, who has just put a comment on here. Thank you so much, Claire. Claire is assistant head at an alternate provision. So again, knowing that, um, yes, exclamation mark. Yeah, why some of the current pupils just shut down? Shame and embarrassment that they don't know or have experienced things that are on the GCSE papers and in the GCSE questions. Now, I know another colleague who's doing um, some doctoral research at the moment around the nature of maths questions in maths papers and the impact on how they are framed for children um, with ADHD. I wonder 
about any research, and I bet somebody's done this, I bet you'll be able to, to quote her, it, it will appear on Twitter soon, about someone who's done research about um, the response of children when they don't necessarily have any um, frame of reference to the things that are quoted. Okay, right, I'm going to pause and have another word from our fabulous sponsors. You've been listening to Teachers Talk Radio. Tune in. Teaching is a rewarding profession, but it comes with its fair share of challenges. That's where ADAPT come in. We're not your typical trade union, but instead a modern, apolitical alternative, offering expert legal, employment and mental health support. Protection without the politics. So what makes ADAPT different? We're always apolitical and independent, Specialised solely in supporting individual teachers. Our caseworkers are professionally qualified, ensuring you always get the best advice. Plus, there's 24-7 mental health support. Whether it's a simple contract check or handling serious allegations, EDAPT are here for you. Join the thousands of educators who've chosen EDAPT to protect their careers. Subscribe at edapt.org.uk today. EDAPT. Supporting school staff. Protecting careers. This is Teachers Talk Radio. Thank you. And a great word there from our sponsor. <laughs> Thank you, Paul, um, for joining us. Um, very much. Very great. He just sent a message to say that he's got to go. I hope he does look out for us again. That's been brilliant. So, um, again, thank you. And it wouldn't be my show if there weren't a few technical issues, would it, there with me trying to go to the news and going to something else instead. So just going to look at another angle now. Now, we've, we've looked at um, various things about the, um, the, the issues around um, bias against children from working class backgrounds in schools. So the, the, this work now that we've been talking about also cites studies that show that, that teachers may act differently towards children from working class backgrounds. And there has been research that's going on saying that children, teachers may show less warmth, give less eye contact and give lower quality feedback. Now, I'm hoping that teachers listening to this, they may say, right, OK, that's definitely not me. But this research is saying that that is, a, that is the case and that's been found to, to happen in, you know, in, in some schools and by some teachers. So, again, um, Dr. Um, Oh, sorry, I've just <laughs> I've just made a, a, a little error there. So again, um, in the, in his book, again, um, we've got Professor um, Lee Elliot Major. In there, he he does make a number of recommendations for teachers. It's designed to be a practical guide, and he includes staff sessions to reflect on subconscious biases that that might be making uh, that might be creating barriers. And he talks about having a th think about a deep listening campaign and measures to poverty proof the school day, so helping families to access food, uniform, school trips and, and after school clubs. Now, really interested to read the work of Professor Damien Page, Vice Chancellor at Buckingham New University, where he's um, Professor of Education. Um, again, his comment about the, the Guardian article was that he agrees with much of it, apart from the framing of unconscious bias. And he argues in, in a lot of his work, he's written very widely about unconscious bias, but he argues that there is usually very little that is actually unconscious about bias. And the point about middle class advantages being baked into the education is spot on, he says. And, and also he talks out that it, work, it goes on into the workplace. Now, he writes a lot about unconscious bias and argues very much that it's not unconscious in, in some of his other works. And one, of, one piece of work that he'd written, one of his um, pieces of, one of his really interesting uh, published articles that, that I found, he says that unconscious bias happens by our brains making incredibly quick judgments and assessing without us realising. And our biases are influenced by background, cultural environments and experiences. And we may not be aware of these views and opinions or of their full impacts and implications. Um, 
his article actually opposes that point of view um, that's usually given as a description of unconscious bias, but saying that it's actually quite different to that. And it's it, it's about our background, cultural environment and personal experience. But if we actually use phrases like unconscious bias, we dismiss, we diminish some of those white supremacy and in this case, um, middle class focus. Um, and it actually takes away our own responsibility, actually not to be biased. So he argues very strongly that that definition of unconscious bias that I read a minute ago is wrong. And we need to go deeper into this and not just accept that something might be unconscious bias and almost that makes it okay because it's unconscious. I think that's a really, really interesting point. And, and I would really apologise profusely for Professor, to Professor Damien Page if I've misquoted any of that. Um, but it is really fascinating around not just parking unconscious bias as being something that's there. Um, again, just going to, to go on for um, another minute or two um, around some of this before I, I start to um, conclude it a little bit. Um, again, thinking about that whole idea of, of bias and is that bias conscious or unconscious? Is it um, subconscious bias, as I've heard it, or is it just something that, that is there in people's minds? And I think this, again, it brings me back to the discussion that we were having last week around um, the need for everybody to be more than just being allies, but actually really being disruptors and challenging the system. So one of the things that Sufian said to us about racism, and this, this really made me think, is it's not enough just to be um, a an ally and to support, but we need to challenge every time we hear something racist, every time that we see a bias, and we need to actively make sure we are looking at and examining our own biases really, really carefully so that when we're making decisions, we know that we're not just appointing people into positions who look like us and sound like us. And I think that's really important here too. Um, again, just thinking about that idea about bias, when we then look and we're thinking about um, you know, schools, for example, and I'm going I'm to reference governors because I, I often um, talk about, about school governors. I'm going to give a couple of quotes now that have come through um, people have, have um, commented through discussing about what I was going to talk about tonight. And so schools shall remain unnamed. I just want to be really clear that both governors were challenged at the time and, and are no longer governors. So the first comment, and I think this really shows the bias here and lack of knowledge as well. Responding to a discussion around pupil premium spend, um, the, the comment was, yes, we're doing this for these children, but what are we doing for the bright ones? So just think what assumptions, what biases that and what absolute ignorance that that really showed up, that, that children who come from poorer backgrounds can't be bright. Um, we know that, that children, we know from um, research that children start um, underachieving in, compared to their um, peers from really early ages. So again, this is why with my um, colleagues that I'm really fortunate to mentor um, as, as ECTs in, in early years and in, in year one, really clear with them that when you're talking ability and prior attainment, being really, really careful about that. But I think that was just interesting to, to note that assumption. Um, again, right, okay, I've got another great comment from Claire about this. I was put into ability sets at middle schools from three similar-sized feeder schools. Only a few of us came from my school on the council estate, and it was, it was commented that we were unusual, not so unconscious as a child. The message seemed pretty clear about where we belonged. So, Claire, I think you're probably talking about one of the higher prior attainment middle school sets that you were in there. Again, that same assumption that, that children from poorer backgrounds can't be in 
um, the, the more ability gr groups. And again, something that's very frightening about ability groups, but I'm, I'm glad you ended up in there. Um, the second, again, from um, a governor, and um, this, this one is probably even worse. And again, no school to be mentioned and just be reassured that this governor is no longer um, involved in governance and was challenged at, town at the time. Again, this was around the reporting of behaviour and exclusions broken down by group and noting that the attendance was lower for children eligible for pupil premium and that exclu exclusions were higher. And the comment that was made was, well, these children shouldn't even be here in our village because they've just been moved out because of gentrification elsewhere. And so absolutely awful to even think that there is any child that doesn't have a space in a school. And that has been challenged. But again, just seeing children as a problem and not their backgrounds, which is, again, something that um, is really important, that if we a bit like when we were talking um, with racial equity, we're not just being allies, but we are absolutely challenging. And we're also making sure that anyone in these positions are responsible, um, are, are really, really aware of their responsibilities and, and know a little bit more. OK, I'm going to go just with one final word from our fabulous sponsors. Teaching is a rewarding profession, but it comes with its fair share of challenges. That's where ADAPT come in. We're not your typical trade union, but instead a modern, apolitical alternative offering expert legal, employment and mental health support. Protection without the politics. So what makes EDAPT different? We're always apolitical and independent, specialised solely in supporting individual teachers. Our caseworkers are professionally qualified, ensuring you always get the best advice. Plus, there's 24-7 mental health support. Whether it's a simple contract check or handling serious allegations, EDAPT are here for you. Join the thousands of educators who've chosen Edapt to protect their careers. Subscribe at edapt.org.uk today. Edapt. Supporting school staff. Protecting careers. This is Teachers Talk Radio. Fabulous. And welcome back again. Um, great to hear from our, our brilliant sponsors, Adapt, who are doing some great work for teachers um, and are fairly new on the scene, which is brilliant. Brilliant to hear from them. So just to wrap this up a little bit before we before we move on, thinking about all those those key topics that, that we've looked at around working class children being um, disadvantaged and the bias against working class pupils in in um, English schools so really really interesting there and I wonder what you would take away from that me personally what I take away with it is it is another really important area to make sure that um, looking at and checking out any biases that I do have um, when I'm working with children particularly when you're thinking about your aspirations for those children and what they are going to be able to do and how they're going to be able to do it. What evidence are you you're basing that on? Any thoughts about prior attainment? We know that um, one of the things that I worked on when um, when I was still ahead was looking at the RADI programme and they were, they were challenging some of those biases then by asking us to uplift children who were eligible for pupil premium and almost act as if their prior attainment was higher and encourage teachers to do that. And that was about those higher aspirations and around trying to take away some of that um, view of, um, you know, what what is is okay and, um, you know, what you would expect of children. That's one thing. The whole thought about role models is something else that um, I also think is a really, really important takeaway from this. And just thinking about in school, what sort of role models and what what does success look like and does success always have to look like? Um, and what you know, you're, you're giving as role models to children as being people with a BBC accent or, you know, speaking in, in a very, very BBC way or having what are the trappings of middle class life. That's my other, they're a couple of my other real key takeaways. I wonder um, what yours are. So I 
would like to thank you all for um, joining me. Um, it's as always, it's a real, real privilege to um, be on here and be be talking to you. Um, coming up at seven thirty, still on Podbean, we have the brilliant James Radburn. And James, I just want to thank you for sorting out and helping with some of my tech issues from two weeks ago, when um, I know you um, managed to edit and resave my show where I hadn't got the news quite right. So thank you so much to that for that. Tomorrow, we have the brilliant Darren Lester. Um, he's been talking through September about all things mental health. I've been enjoying his show. So I'm not quite sure what he's talking about tomorrow, but I shall look forward to it and hopefully tune in. And then Graham Stanley at five. Um, on the 8th of October, 10 o'clock, look out for the, for the weekly review because that is always, always a good one. And um, thank you to all of you. Um, for listening. And I look forward to seeing you back here in two weeks time. I'm here fortnightly. So um, I just can't wait. It'd be really nice to see you again in two weeks. Goodbye. You've been listening to Teachers Talk Radio. Tune in live and listen back at ttradio.org. We look forward to hearing from you next time on Teachers Talk Radio.